The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about all things memory. First, we'll talk with Dr. Mike Yasa about how our brains tell the difference between all of the homogenous moments we experience. Then, Dr. James McGaugh explains how emotion alters what we remember and how we might weaken specifically traumatic and vivid memories. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Jesse Yaros. Every day when leaving work and heading towards our cars, we have to remember where we parked today. Not where we parked a million other times in the same lot, but just today. This is just one example of the human ability to parse apart extremely similar memories from one another. Here to talk with us about this today is Dr. Mike Yasa, Associate Professor at UC Irvine in the Departments of Neurobiology and Behavior and Neurology. He's also the director for the Center of Neurobiology of Learning and Memory, and full disclosure, my advisor in graduate school. His research focuses on the neural mechanisms that support learning and memory, and how those circuits are altered throughout the course of aging. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm going to start off with a loaded question. What is memory? How would you define it? Huh. Um, there's probably a variety of different ways to define memory, but I'll, I'll give you sort of my, my favorite definition, um, which is really anything that is capable of uh, making a lasting change or a lasting imprint on the brain. Um, so that's, that's pretty broad. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be any specific part of the brain, just a change in the exactly. brain somewhere. It has to be long-lasting. That's that's the key um, that I think about for memory, uh, is that it can't just be something transient. Uh, it really has to have the impact and the ability to modify later behavior, um, to guide future behavior. So that's really, I think, probably the most um, practical definition of memory. And um, a lot of the basics we know about the neuroscience of memory come from research on a patient named Henry Malaysen, or HM. Uh, could you tell us a, a bit about his case's contribution to our current understanding of, of memory? Sure. Um, so Henry was a, a very interesting case of neuropsychology um, that uh, we only came to know his name actually quite recently when he passed away, but for the longest time we knew him only as HM. Um, and HM's story is as follows. Uh, HM, as a young man, uh, fell and hit his head. And as a result of that accident, he uh, suffered from epileptic seizures. Now, normally, epileptic seizures are uh, uh, something that can be ameliorated with an anti-epileptic, uh, with pharmacological treatments. But in his case, uh, he was not responsive to those treatments. So uh, what you would do to a patient who was not responsive to a pharmacological treatment back then in the 50s is the same thing that you would do today, um, which is that they would undergo a surgical procedure to remove the part of the brain where the seizures seem to emanate from. So uh, that's exactly the surgery that he underwent. Um, uh, this was a uh, surgeon by the name of William Scoville um, who lopped out parts of the brain where he thought the seizures were coming from. And for all intents and purposes, the, the surgery worked reasonably well. Um, but when he awoke, it was very clear that he was uh, changed in a, in a dramatic way. 
Uh, he was unable to make any new memories of any experiences that he had after the surgery. And he was also unable to remember things that were um, that had occurred recently before the surgery. His, his past memories were okay uh, way back in the past. So knowing who he was and where he came from, all of that was intact. But as um, he started to try to remember things that were closer in time to the surgery, all of that was gone. And certainly his ability to make any new uh, memories stick was also uh, uh, gone. So this was quite profound and um, uh, somewhat disturbing, of course, to Scoville, um, who then enlisted the help of um, somebody by the name of Brenda Milner, who was a psychologist who was able to uh, test HM's abilities in more detail uh, to be able to ascertain exactly what I just told you, which is that his ability to learn and remember new information was impaired, but his ability to remember the past um, was, was still intact. And his ability to remember things also like, you know, how to ride a bicycle or how to tie your shoelaces, all of that was still there. So clearly, there are different memory systems in the brain that were still intact, but his ability to remember day-to-day events was really what was compromised. And uh, that really has something to do with the part of the brain that was removed. And uh, it turns out that um, Scoville unknowingly at the time removed a part of the brain that is very, very important for memory, or at least this type of memory, uh, which is what we know as the hippocampus and the surrounding cortical regions or the medial temporal lobe. So it's a part of the brain that is sort of uh, deep towards the inside, um, typically well protected with this, you know, uh, thick cortex around it and then obviously a a very hard skull. Um, But it is very susceptible to disease, especially things like epilepsy. Um, So we tend to see a lot of epileptic seizures come from that particular part of the brain. So the reason why this case was very informative to us is because at the time, nobody really knew what that part of the brain does. Uh, people had some inklings, but really nothing nothing significant. And this was so dramatic, and it really kind of forced us to think very clearly about um, what types of memory systems exist in the brain and what is the functional division of labor in the brain as it relates to memory. And um, also what the particular function of, of this region in the brain has to do in service of memory, which is uh, really the acquisition of new information, but not really holding on to that information for any significant period of time. Over time, that information gets stored elsewhere. That's why he could still remember things from way back in his past. So, so I, I would say, yeah, go ahead. What do we know about um, how that information is transferred from that hippocampal area where the memories are created um, and to where is it transferred and how? That's another great question, and it's not one um, that we have an absolute accurate and precise answer for, but I can tell you that um, most uh, people that do this work now believe that this information is stored in the cortex, so elsewhere in the brain outside of the hippocampus, but that that information has to funnel through the hippocampus, and the hippocampus creates a little bit of an index to be able to retrieve that information, uh, much in the same way that if you um, look at an academic textbook, there's an index at the end of it with uh, places, with keywords and, and places to look them up in terms of pages. That's exactly what the hippocampus uh, seems to be able to do is store that index, that, that reference to where all the bits and pieces of memories are stored. And by reactivating that, that index in the hippocampus, you can retrieve memories from way back in the past. So that's the idea, that's the notion, is that uh, memories themselves are stored elsewhere, and the hippocampus doesn't actually store memories at all, it just stores that index. And 
they're not just stored in a certain area elsewhere. It may be distributed throughout the cortex. That's the belief, is that it's really throughout the brain. Um, when you think about it, every experience has visual aspects, um, uh, auditory aspects, maybe some uh, kinesthetic or tactile aspects if you're feeling things and touching things, um, some smells. So really experiences are, are multimodal in nature. And the belief is that the different pieces of cortex um, that are responsible for that type of information, so auditory cortex for, for auditory information, um, those are the places where you're likely to store a lot of these memories, in addition to some other higher level cortices that are involved in things like reason and judgment and, and so on. So, well, one area specifically is incredibly modular for formation of those day-to-day -day memories. Uh, the other, there's no area you could target to sort of ablate um, uh, retrieval of those memories entirely. Not to our knowledge today. Uh, there's probably some amount of uh, information that is critical to the memory. So maybe a cortical index, so to speak, so that if you were to target, um, say you want to do kind of the, the, you know, the $500 million experiment, whatever it may be, to eliminate a traumatic memory, right? Um, there may be certain places, certain indices, certain loci in the brain that if you were to target, you would have a much more effective way of disrupting those memories uh, without having to disrupt every single aspect of it. So there may be some critical nodes um, that disruption thereof would, would you know, eliminate those kinds of memories. But we're not there yet. I don't think uh, th these experiments have only been done in animal models where the actual memories themselves are highly impoverished and uh, they don't really reflect the richness of human memory. So we're not there with humans yet, but I think we're rapidly coming close. And this brings up a, another big uh, question in, in human memory research, because, you know, because of all those ethical issues, we can't just lesion an area of the brain, can we? Not quite. I think that's going to come with, uh, with a lot of um, uh, ethical issues to, to debate and think about. Um, but, you know, uh, surgical procedures to eliminate uh, tumors and uh, epileptic seizures are essentially lesions. So you can imagine that in the extreme, one can imagine a part of the brain that is um, uh, pathological and storing a lot of traumatic memories. Well, maybe that's a part of the brain that needs to be disrupted. So uh, this is a discussion that has to happen over an extended period of time, and the international community would have to weigh in into the ethics of it. But I think the ethics will track with the scientific advance as it has in the past. But we can't wait for different case studies and surgeries with these lesions to learn about memory. So the way that human research, researchers approach it is through imaging. Um, and uh, since you aren't able to manipulate the brain in the same way that you can as animal researchers can, how do you look at the neural underpinnings of memory in such non-invasive ways? That's a great question. And uh, the short answer is that uh, you can do a lot, but you can't exactly get at uh, um, some of the most crucial questions about causality. So what we tend to do with imaging research is that we're trying to find correlational evidence as to the involvement of different networks in the brain um, in certain aspects of memory. But we also started to ask uh, in recent years, maybe the last 10, 15 years, um, I think more important questions about not just where, but how. 
how do areas of the brain and networks in the brain interact to give rise to this incredible ability that we call memory. Um, so all of these questions can be addressed to a, a, a fairly large extent with imaging technology, with uh, correlations between brain and behavior. But ultimately, if you're trying to understand the dependency um, of certain cognitive capacities on different networks or parts of the brain, um, the disruption experiments are important. Um, so in the absence of being able to do that in humans, I think that's where really using animal models is highly advantageous. And the the lesion studies and the animal research can really inform where we look in the human imaging studies, correct? Absolutely. It tells us exactly where to look, but it also can tell us um, some subtleties about the timing and uh, the nature of the involvement of certain things. Um, lesion is really a very, very broad term. Um, now these days, it's more common to see things like reversible inactivations. Um, manipulations with optogenetics can involve millisecond timing precision to shut down neural activity for a very brief period of time and then bring it back online. So you can look at things like disruption of rhythm and flow and communication rather than just eliminating a hunk of brain, which is really all we did 50, 60 years ago. So what is an example of uh, reversal inactivation uh, that affects memory? Oh, there's, there's a, a large number of these investigations now. So you can imagine a situation in which you put the animal in an environment and, um, and they're supposed to go around foraging and learning uh, maybe object place associations. If you were to uh, inject a um, reversible um, lesion or put in a chemical that is able to shut down neural activity for some period of time, um, like um, fluorophore conjugated mucimol is, is one of those things. Um, you can prevent the animal from learning anything because the hippocampus is effectively shut down while they're navigating around that maze. Um, you could do the same thing with an optogenetic manipulation, so sticking a probe in there um, to shine light onto specific receptors that are responsive to that light. And as a result, they will either shut down or they will open and either activate or inactivate cells in the same way with millisecond time precision so that you can shut it down exactly when you might expect it to be active and see what the timing role might be. So uh, your research in memory um, is uh, uniquely informed by, uh, by animal research in, in that it looks at the specific a neural computation that we know about from uh, research in mouse and rat models and um, computational neuroscience. So could you tell us a bit about this computation um, and the origin of its research in animals and how you look at it in humans? Sure. Um, so one of the most um, informative computations to what we do is a computation that we refer to as, as pattern separation. It's actually been referred to that way um, since the early 70s by David Marr, who first proposed this notion that in order for us to have an effective memory system, we have to be able to distinguish among very similar experiences and use um, different neural matter, um, different neural activity, different neural um, uh, substrates to encode those different memories so that they don't overwrite one another. 
the example I typically like to give is where you parked your car today versus yesterday versus the day before. These are all similar experiences, and yet the brain is able to seamlessly uh, store them using independent records. So how we do that still remains uh, somewhat a mystery, but we have some ideas about um, how to test those notions about pattern separation. Um, there's uh, Since the 70s, um, there was kind of... Um, um, a, a relative paucity of work in this area up until the 90s um, when computational models sort of revived the notion and talked about how important these computations are to have uh, in order to have an effective episodic memory system. And then it wasn't really until 2004 that a set of three papers were published almost concurrently um, showing actual empirical evidence for this computation in animal models. So these are examples of uh, firing of different neurons in the hippocampus that really suggested they might be engaged in this particular kind of computation. Um, fast forward a few years later, um, uh, we and others and many other colleagues were able to amass uh, a, a number of uh, different pieces of evidence in humans to show how this process also works in, in, uh, in humans using functional brain imaging or fMRI. So uh, in the example of trying to find out where your car is or you're walking towards your car, you know where you parked it in the parking lot and you get there and you're like, oh, wait, that was where I parked my car yesterday. So mm -hmm. would you say this is somewhat of a failure to demonstrate this pattern separation computation? That's exactly right. And of course, you know, there's many reasons why that might have happened. So it could be a failure of retrieval because uh, of distraction of uh, interference across different experiences in different days. It could be that when you parked your car today, you were in a hurry and you didn't really think about where you parked it so much. So that was ineffective encoding of today's experience. And maybe yesterday you had a little more time so that that experience kind of overshadowed um, the last experience you had with parking your car. So there's a variety of different reasons why you might generate sort of a false memory there. Um, some of them have to do with faulty encoding, and some of them have to do with faulty retrieval. So anywhere along the, the process, there can be an error. Absolutely. And we say, you know, I call this a failure to pattern separate, um, but it must not be the case that every time you don't pattern separate that it's a failure. Well, that's absolutely true. In many cases, uh, it does not behoove you to pattern separate. In many cases, what you want to do is actually generalize and be able to um, perform the opposing computation of pattern completion, um, which is being able to reinstantiate an existing memory uh, based on a partial or a degraded queue. So, for example, if I were to see um, you coming in with, uh, you know, uh, different hairstyle or you've changed your appearance slightly, um, I still want to be able to recognize that it's you. Um, I don't want to all of a sudden think you're a different person. So I have to be able to do that kind of recognition despite the fact that you're, the representation of you today might be different from what I've experienced in the past. So having that kind of flexibility is also very important. Um, so I think that to have an effective memory system, you really have to have both. You have to have the ability to distinguish and discriminate among similar experiences, in other words, pattern separation, but you also have to be able to flexibly generalize to new situations, which is really what pattern completion allows you to do. So you've basically designed a test that you think can reflect uh, the behavioral outputs of these neural computations. Uh, how did you design this task? 
Well, there's there's a lot that goes into it. Um, you first have to try to figure out what kind of um, behavioral output you're interested in. And in this case, you know, uh, as I said with the um, parking lot example, you're interested in discrimination. You're interested in being able to distinguish among similar experiences. Um, but you also want to do it in a laboratory setting so you can control variables. So having uh, people get tested on where they park their car every day is just not feasible, not practical, and it doesn't give you a lot of degree of control. Um, so, so we resorted to pictures, and um, pictures are quite straightforward. You can manipulate their similarity. And, um, and we've done also uh, things like space, so we can look at how things in similar spaces might be um, interfering with one another, or things that are close together in time might be interfering with one another. And every step of the way, when we design one of these tasks, um, we try to uh, kind of build a parametric space. So we build a, um, a continuum of different similarities and different difficulties, and we look at, uh, instead of performance as just a single measure, we look at it as a function of the degree of interference, so how similar the experiences are. And of course, as you can imagine, if they're very, very similar, it's going to be a much more difficult task. If they're not so similar, it'll be easier. And, and in, yep. in these experiences, just to be clear, uh, when in the task, what are subjects viewing um, and what is their job in terms of discrimination versus generalization? So to give you an example, in, in the objects task, what they would be asked to do is look at um, images of everyday objects that are projected on the screen. And every now and then we would show them objects that are similar, but not identical. So it could be tilted slightly, it could be a different shading, different color, or maybe even a different object in the same category, like two hammers or two picnic baskets. And we ask them to tell us if it's the same object they've seen before or if it's something different. Uh, in the spatial version, instead of changing the identity of the object, we would move it ever so slightly, or we would move it a lot. Uh, in the temporal example, we would present items um, sequentially, and then later on present them side by side and say which one happened first. And what we're manipulating there is the number of items that came in between them during the encoding. So things that are presented close together in time usually are a lot more uh, confusable. Things that were presented farther apart in time are a lot more distinguishable. So in the human brain, what does it look like when uh, a subject is able to identify a image as seen before versus fails to do so and thinks uh, it's an entirely new image? So typically what we, we try to do is um, we use an effect that's been known about for an fMRI for quite some time now that we call fMRI adaptation. And the idea there is that the first time I ever show you anything, there's lots and lots of brain activity. It's a little bit of a novelty effect. Um, but the second time that I show you the same exact thing, that level of activity goes down. It's a signal that uh, this is familiar, that the brain is, uh, has adapted to it. It doesn't really need to activate to the same level. So that's a trick that can be used uh, a little bit to our advantage in terms of what happens now if I were to show you something similar but not identical. Uh, will your brain treat it as if it's a new item and have lots and lots of activity? Or will it bring down the level of activity in terms of, uh, in other words, it's signaling that this is familiar and it thinks that it's the same thing it's seen before? And of course, there's every level in between depending on the, the extent of similarity. And numerous researchers have been able to replicate this effect um, with different versions of this, we call it mnemonic discrimination task. Um, so you can, I imagine, uh, give the task, 
without someone being in the scanner and make an assumption or correlation as to how their brain would be acting when they're doing these specific discrimination or generalization processes, correct? Yes. So, in fact, that was really the motivation behind designing um, very sharply tuned behavioral tasks that are highly specific and sensitive to this computation because our belief is that uh, if we are able to deploy these tasks in the community, we can start to use them as diagnostics and um, without having to actually do the very expensive MRI studies. If we can determine if somebody has a memory deficit very early on, we can try to uh, target them with uh, treatments and therapeutics very early on. And one of the major contexts in which we're um, involved in doing this is in, in preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So in individuals who are at risk, but they haven't really expressed manifest symptoms yet, they might have some subjective memory complaints, but they're not really diagnosed with anything. But this test might act as a, as a much more fine-tuned kind of diagnostic. So uh, this test may even be able to pick up on memory deficits before um, uh, obvious brain imaging could? Well, I think brain imaging is always going to be more sensitive than behavior. Um, but the question is, not before brain imaging, but in lieu of brain imaging. Um, brain imaging still remains quite expensive. And if you want to do something at the level of millions of individuals, it's much better to have a community assessment tool that is akin to a paper and pencil test or even a computerized iPad test um, that would be cheap, relatively inexpensive, and requires no expertise to be able to analyze. So that's the goal from developing something like this. When we do the imaging studies, we're trying to um, achieve neurobiological validation. And that's what we as scientists spend a lot of time doing. But then the clinicians are, are, don't really have to do that anymore. They can just use the test as a diagnostic that is fairly reliable and validated. So in addition to the Alzheimer's community, you've been able to find some other potential applications for this test. So what other um, uh, communities and clinical pathologies have you found to have altered pattern separation or completion processes? So we've seen evidence of alterations in these computations in neuropsychiatric illness, including depression and anxiety and PTSD. We've also seen it in psychosis, so schizophrenia and bipolar disorder with psychotic features. Um, we've been able to look at it also in the context of positive interventions. So we determined that uh, there's an effect on these kinds of computations also uh, by even just acute interventions like caffeine ingestion and uh, physical exercise. So it is a highly modifiable behavioral index, which means that there's plasticity in the brain behind it that is also highly modifiable with these different agents or with these different conditions. So there's some on the negative side and there's some on, on the positive side where we can actually make the behavior better. We've also done things like in clinical trials uh, in Alzheimer's disease where you have an impairment in pattern separation using specific treatments and therapeutics. We're able to document uh, enhancements in the behavior on that task as a result of this treatment or therapeutic. So these, a lot of these, um, these pathologies that you're talking about aren't sort of necessarily synonymous with memory deficits. Um, at least you don't think of a major issue with schizophrenia or depression as being with memory. Uh, so are we picking up on potential memory deficits in, in these conditions, or is it indicative of a more general um, process of this computation for more than just memory? 
So that is a great question, and um, it's likely a combination of both. I can tell you that um, just because it's not the uh, most traditional set of symptoms that you would think of when you think of schizophrenia or depression, doesn't mean they're not there. Actually, um, cognitive deficits, including memory and attention deficits, are part of the uh, symptomatology of schizophrenia that we've known about for a very long time. It's not it's not what you typically hear about. You typically would hear about hallucinations and delusions um, or even negative symptoms like anhedonia, but the cognitive symptoms are certainly there. And they've been documented in depression for quite a long time as well. What we're doing is offering more specificity to the type of memory deficit and type of cognitive deficit that we see in these disorders. So it's not that all of a sudden we're uh, illuminating ourselves to a cognitive deficit that never that we didn't think existed before. It's that we're offering more um, resolution to understand the nature of that cognitive deficit. And to be honest, most of the um, treatments out there, especially for schizophrenia, have have targeted one set of symptoms but not the others. And uh, not a lot has been targeting these cognitive symptoms, which can be quite dramatic also and quite debilitating. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Mike. Thank you for having me. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. Mike Yasa and his research on memory and aging, navigate to yasalab.org. That's Y-A-S-S-A lab.org. You can find more information and links to Mike's sites on the show notes for this episode, which you'll find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. We'll be right back after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. Ever heard of a flashbulb memory? It's one of those incredibly detailed and vivid memories where you can picture exactly where you were when you first heard that shocking news. For me, it was September 11th. For my mom, the JFK assassination. Dr. James McGaw is here to tell us how exactly experiencing emotion strengthens our memories and how some of those memories might be altered for therapeutic benefit. Like Dr. Yasa, Dr. James McGaw is a research professor at UC Irvine, where he founded both the UCI Department of Neurobiology and Behavior and the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. Over the years, his research has investigated the brain processes underlying the effects of drug and stress hormones on memory storage. Dr. McGaw, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. So much of your research is focused on the interaction of memory and emotion. Can you start out by describing the behavioral effects emotional experience has on memory? Well, the most general effect that emotion has is that it creates a strong memory of the experiences that have either just occurred or are occurring. So if you get excited about something, the probability is that you're going to remember it better than something that didn't excite you. Uh, for example, you may remember your first kiss, or you may remember having gotten electric shock. You may remember a little fender bender, something of that kind. All of these slight things uh, are remembered better than experiences that are not emotionally arousing. 
And what we've done in the laboratory is to investigate the brain systems that enable that to happen. So which systems and regions are involved in that process? Well, it's, it starts in the periphery so that uh, if I should say something that embarrasses you, for example, your face would turn red, you would turn a little warm, and that's because adrenaline or epinephrine is being released from the adrenal gland, from the middle part of the adrenal gland, and it goes coursing through your body and has effects that activate the brain. Now, when it gets to the brain, it turns on a very specific region of the brain called the amygdala, which is, uh, the word amygdala is Greek for almond because it's an almond-shaped structure located in the medial temporal lobes on both sides of the brain. Now, when that gets activated, that region then communicates with regions of the brain in which the information that led to the release is being stored, and it says, uh, in effect, make a strong memory, something very important happened, and you're going to hold that information. I'm just giving the instructions. So uh, once that part of the series happens, where is the connection with um, the hippocampus and memory formation? Oh, well, the, the um, amygdala is more richly connected with other brain regions than any other brain region is connected with other brain regions. So it just sends out as communications wherever memories are being processed. Now, if it happens to be a memory that involves the hippocampus, which most of our memories do involve, that is memory of what, when, and where things happen, the hippocampus handles that information, well, then the amygdala sends out a signal when something important happens, and it says, Remember where you were and what you were doing when this happened, and it makes a strong memory by inducing changes there. Now, the changes have actually been assessed. So experiments have been done in my laboratory where uh, animals are emotionally aroused. The amygdala is turned on by the arousal, and downstream from there, then, in the hippocampus, there's an activation of the immediate early gene arc, which is a, a, a substance which is involved in promoting memories at a cellular level. So the whole sequence starts with getting excited, emotionally excited, releasing epinephrine or adrenaline, activating this brain region, which then communicates and influences the neuroplasticity that is taking place in these distal regions that are responsible for handling the specific information about what was learned. So in your work, how did you isolate uh, the amygdala and the chemicals involved to see its effect on these downstream regions? All right. The first thing they did, we did was a series of brain lesions in which we actually uh, either uh, surgically removed the amygdala or we inactivated the amygdala with a local anesthetic. So we could train animals and who either don't have the amygdala or we could shut it off and we could find out what effect that had on memory. And what we discovered was that Exciting things do not create strong memories if animals lack an amygdala. They can learn, but they, the effect of excitement was just removed. So that was the second thing that we did. 
The, the next thing that we did was to train animals under conditions that did not make strong memories, but we activated the amygdala by introducing a tiny amounts, one-fifth of a microliter, a tiny amount of a solution directly into a sub-region of the amygdala called the basolateral region of the amygdala. We, we injected this substance shortly after training, and we found that the animals remembered better. If we injected the substance an hour after training, the animals did not remember better. And that told us then that we were influencing the processes that are involved in the fixing or the consolidation of memory, which takes time after learning. So we've gone from the release of epinephrine in the periphery to the activation of the brain region, and we activate the brain region by putting norepinephrine into it as a first cousin of epinephrine. And that's what turns it on. And if we turn it on immediately, it will enhance memory. If we delay it, it won't. So that's the sequence of things that we did in order to determine that this region of the brain and the subregion of the brain uh, was in, is involved in the consolidation of emotionally important experiences. So you mentioned that uh, first in the process, adrenaline is released by the adrenal gland, and that leads to the activation in the amygdala, correct? Yes. So in these experiments, are you saying that you uh, cut out the first step where there was no exciting uh, stimulus that caused the release of adrenaline and then were able to make the amygdala act as if there was by injecting the substance? We could, we could make a strong memory of an unimportant experience by activating the amygdala after the training. Okay. We could also, we could also make a weak memory of a strong ex emotionally exciting experience by blocking the activation of the amygdala. So we could do either just by manipulating the activity uh, of the amygdala. So in the first case, you delivered norepinephrine, and what is the substance used to inactivate the amygdala? Oh, we would use lidocaine or something like lidocaine, which would shut off the sodium pump so that the cells in the amygdala temporarily couldn't work for a period of time. So we could either make a lesion or we could make a temporary inactivation, and those would impair the formation of emotionally arousing memory, or we could <clears throat> create a, the uh, the effect without an emotional experience. We could create the strong memory just by activating this subregion of the amygdala within a short period of time after training by in injecting uh, norepinephrine. And I should also point out that other experiments showed that <clears throat> when animals are trained, uh, that the amount of norepinephrine which is released by the training in the animals will predict the subsequent memory at a later time. And we did, we did that by putting down little probes which would measure the release of, um, uh, of substances from the amygdala when they were being trained. Then we analyzed those using chromatography and discovered that the greater the amount of norepinephrine released by the trainer, the stronger the memory would be on subsequent day testing. You found that you were able to uh, more selectively alter uh, the release of norepinephrine than 
without using lidocaine, but by using uh, something called a beta blocker. Could you describe uh, what a beta blocker is and how you used it in your experiments? Yes. Uh, in the first experiments, I was just describing the way in which we just shut off the amygdala. But in most of the experiments, we don't shut off the amygdala. We simply take action which will prevent the action of norepinephrine. And we do that by administering a very small dose of a a drug which blocks the beta adrenergic receptors, that is the receptors in the brain that norepinephrine act on in order to stimulate subsequent neural activity. And that uh, substance that we used uh, was propranolol, which is a beta adrenergic blocker. Uh, it's uh, used uh, clinically uh, for high blood pressure. It's a well-known drug. The uh, person who uh, invented it won the Nobel Prize for inventing propranolol, and we just happened to have it available for our experiments. I should point out also that we did experiments with um, human memory and found that if we give humans uh, doses of propranolol, that will block their formation of a strong memory of a very exciting experience. Right, and, and this study was published in, in 1994 in Nature. Uh, could you describe the the methods and, and the findings specifically in that paper? The subjects um, were uh, administered either uh, propranolol or a placebo pill, and then they were told one of uh, two stories. One story was just a very boring story about a boy and a mother leaving home, they see a damaged car. They're on their way to visit their the father in the hospital, and it's disaster prepared in this day. So they see people that look like they've been injured. The mother makes a telephone call and goes home. And for each of these statements, they were shown a picture to depict the situation. Um, uh, other groups were showed were shown a series, the same series of pictures, but were told a different story. Born mother left home. Uh, they cross the street, the boy is hit by an automobile, he's badly injured, he's rushed to the hospital, and the surgeons work frantically to save his life. The mother makes a telephone call and goes home. Now, uh, a couple of weeks later, they were tested for their memory of the slides that were shown in association with the story. They all, showed the, they all saw the same slides. They were just told a different story. And the subjects that... Um, were, were received the control solution for placebo, uh, remembered the uh, exciting part of, of the story well, and, and remembered the slides associated with that. The subjects that received the uh, propranolol remembered it as though it was a boring story. In other words, the effect of the emotionally arousing story was blunted by preventing the action of epinephrine with propranolol. So the same neural correlates are at play in humans as you had found earlier in animal models. Yes, we have done extensive work uh, with humans to do the best we can to uh, do studies which are like those with the laboratory animals. And in every case, we have found that activation of epinephrine and norepinephrine enhances memory and that in impairment of epinephrine and norepinephrine impairs memory. Uh, we've also studied the involvement of um, amygdala activation uh, in humans, just as we have in animals, 
and we found using uh, uh, PET scanning that uh, uh, when when the brain is activated by emotional arousal, as measured by uh, PET scanning, that the PET scanning results predict memory tested three weeks later. The greater the activation is, as indexed by, by the PET activation using uh, imaging, the stronger the memory seen several weeks later. So the fact that we have this system in place and it's preserved across species is evidence that this sort of strengthening of memories for emotionally salient events is evolutionarily adaptive. Uh, can you describe some examples of how this might be? First of all, we have to uh, accept a uh, an important assumption here, and that is memory is critical for survival. It's absolutely critical. If we do not have memory, uh, we do not live. It's it's just essential for everything that we do. And it follows from that, then, that in important experiences uh, aid in the survival. Uh, if you're thirsty and you find water, you need to remember that. If you're looking for food and you find an animal that's competing with you for the food in the spot where you go, you need to remember that. And so it's important both for the lower animals and for us to be able to have memory. And then it's it's also obviously important to have a strong memory of important events. I mean, that just follows logically from that. Now, if that's the case, it would make evolutionary sense in order to be able to develop systems which will take care of that. That is, to have systems in the brain which will do what is needed to create strong memories of important events. And we think that in these experiments, we've identified what nature has produced, produced systems in the body and in the brain that help ensure that when something important happens, the likelihood of your babe being able to remember it and use that information is greatly increased. So we see this uh, as no surprise that we find what is operating in the laboratory rat and mice uh, is exactly that that we see in human memory. So this system, though adaptive, may have its, its drawbacks and can sometimes act as a, a double-edged sword. So there may be some disadvantages um, when emotional strengthening of memories uh, can actually uh, become psychologically debilitating, perhaps uh, in the manifestation of, of disorders like PTSD. Um, how does this system uh, play and the role in PTSD pathology? Well, uh, I have to say that that we don't know for sure, but we have some pretty good ideas about the role that it might play. Uh, let's start with just uh, a little bit of pathology of, of memory that is not quite PTSD. Just just think about uh, uh, anxiety, uh, where <clears throat> something happens and you continue to think about it and think about it, it bothers you. Uh, that's disruptive to life. Now, when this is intense, then that creates what we call post-traumatic stress disorder, where you have an event and the experience of it is so powerful that it begins to control your life, a very strong memory of an awful thing that happened. <clears throat> and this is seen uh, to a considerable extent in veterans of military experiences where they watch their compatriots die being severely injured, they themselves are severely injured, 
And as a consequence, they are then burdened by these excessively strong memories of these horrific events. Now, uh, my view is that uh, underlying the creation of these very strong memories is exactly the set of systems that we've already talked about. They're wandering along doing something, and a horrible event happens right in front of them. There is a huge release in adrenaline and also glucocorticoids, the other stress hormone. Both of these are released in great amounts. They turn on this important region of the brain, the amygdala, and the amygdala says, you've got to remember what happened is very important for your survival. And then it overwhelms the individual, and that's what they spend their time remembering. And that's what's called post-traumatic stress disorder, and it leads to drug addiction. It leads to inability to get along with people, inability to maintain a job. It's just a horrible condition probably resulting from the overactivation of this otherwise completely, perfectly functioning and important system. Because of this system, uh, your research on propanolol became of great interest. Um, So since the publication of your study in 94, many studies have looked at the potential therapeutic benefits of beta blockers for various psychological conditions. starting with a 2002 study by Roger Pittman. Um, couldn't you tell us a bit about that study and if you had any involvement in all in this research? Uh, I was uh, <clears throat> in my office uh, shortly after that paper was published, and I got a, a telephone call from uh, Dr. Roger Pittman, whom I did not know at the time, and he said that he wanted to talk with me because he thought that the studies we were doing uh, with propranolol uh, and epinephrine in uh, animals uh, would would be relevant to his studies of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I hadn't thought about that, but he said he wanted to talk with me. So he came out and told me about a study that he was going to do, and then he went back and did it. And the study involved stationing um, nurses at various hospitals in Boston with instructions to enroll people in a study if they if they agreed to do so after they came to the hospital uh, following uh, injury uh, uh, or they were in accidents or they'd been raped or they had been mugged, something of that kind. And uh, the nurses uh, would ask them if they would participate and then they were, would be given either a dose of uh, propranolol, propranolol pill, or a placebo pill as quickly as possible. And most of these individuals came to the hospital within two or three hours after the unfortunate event that they had. They were kept on propranolol for about a week, and then, or, or the placebo, and then about two months later, they were tested for, for the signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. And his findings, which he published, indicated that the patients who were put on propranolol shortly after the traumatizing event showed fewer signs of post-traumatic uh, disorder. Um, his conclusion was that the propranolol interfered with the consolidation of this traumatic memory, uh, which resulted in decreased uh, expression of um, uh, traumatic emotional arousal when tested at a later time. And that was the first study to investigate the effect of a beta blocker on the development of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And the key here being uh, its effect on consolidation of memory because the Propranol law was given so quickly after the moment of trauma. Yes, the the important thing in these in these studies, both in animals and humans, is to have the treatment come as quickly as possible after the learning because memories consolidate after learning, and if you wait too long, the consolidation is over and you have no opportunity to either promote it or interfere with it, as you'd like to do in the case of, of blocking a post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, so that ideally, you see, ideally, uh, uh, people would carry propranolol with them so that if they had some horrible event happening, they could take a dose of propranolol immediately and prevent the development of post-traumatic stress disorder, according to the findings of uh, Dr. Petman. So uh, this potential possibility of, of having propranolol on hand um, really uh, scared some people. So you uh, you were invited after Pittman's paper came out to give a talk at the President's Council of Bioethics. And at the time, this council was directed to advise President George Bush on bioethical issues that could emerge as a consequence of advances in, in biomedical science. Uh, could you tell us more about your experience speaking and, and the subsequent yes. aftermath of this talk? Yes. Uh, as you said, I was invited to uh, to speak to the President's Commission, and my, my topic that they wanted me to discuss was uh, drug enhancement of memory. And that's something that I'd worked on for quite a few years, and so I described the experiments, and I described how uh, certain drugs can enhance the consolidation of memory, and then I segued into a discussion of the um, influences of epinephrine and norepinephrine, uh, those experiments. And then finally, I mentioned, just very briefly, I mentioned uh, Dr. Pittman's work, with propranolol, and I said, uh, out of this basic science research came the very interesting and possibly very important uh, finding of uh, Dr. Pittman that propranolol might be effective in preventing the development of this horrible disability uh, called post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, I left it at that, and uh, they uh, were happy, with, uh, pleased to, with my presentation. We went out to dinner. And I thought that I had done a reasonably good job of summarizing uh, what they wanted me to summarize and uh, left. And then I discovered later that they found the view that I presented to be outrageous and they found it to be uh, uh, ethically unacceptable. And they wrote a book entitled Beyond Therapy in which they made the case. And their, their basic position was that um, our emotion and our responses to them are our human nature. That's who we are. And it is important not to tamper with human nature as though they're talking about the soul. That's what I thought they were talking about. Uh, that w w it was it was dangerous to give propranolol after learning because that changed the fundamental nature of, of our representations of the world. And that's not the right thing to do. Well, my response to that, frankly, was that that is absurd. We do everything we can with our uh, human compatriots to decrease uh, their 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 troubles, their their travails. If a child falls down, we do everything we can to the child to say, "There, there, it's going to be all right." 
if a person is terribly emotionally stressed, psychiatrists give them uh, anti-anxiety drugs or anti-psychotic drugs. Um, if people are injured, we take care of their wounds. We don't say, well, we, we have to leave, leave nature alone because we don't want to interfere with who people are. I regard the, the view that that commission developed as being nonsense, but it gained a lot of interest. And following that, there were uh, many uh, symposia on the bioethics of um, treating people for PTSD that were, were presented uh, throughout the U.S. for several years. So what do you expect to see in the future of PTSD treatments? Do you anticipate pharmacological interventions will become mainstream? Sure. I, I think pharmacological in, in intervention will be. I'm, I'm not sure that it will be propranolol, uh, but I do think that, that the uh, understanding of how memory works will be critical to that. Uh, understanding the systems in the brain that are involved in creating and maintaining traumatic memory will be important. And as there is increased understanding, then there might be a change in thinking about what pharmacological approach might be taken. Now, remember, what we're talking about is a horrible condition that is preventing the normal life of subjects. That, that's what we're, we're talking about. We're not talking about people being mildly upset about something. We're talking about with PTSD, their lives are critically changed, maybe forever. Can anything be done to stop that? That's the question. And if it takes a drug to do that, then I think that would be appropriate to do. Now, there are other approaches being considered right now. Uh, one of my uh, former postdocs, uh, Krista McIntyre at the University of Texas, Dallas, um, is, is using a stimulation of the vagus nerve as a model. Now, the way that, that uh, propranolol, I'm, I'm sorry, the way that epinephrine works is when it's released, it activates the ascending vagus nerve, which then carries information into the brain. That's the way epinephrine influences the brain. And so that can be stimulated by electrodes being put on it. It's been done for many years because the <clears throat> vagal stimulation was developed for people with epilepsy. You put a coil around the ascending vagus nerve, and when patients felt that a seizure is imminent, they could turn on the stimulation, and it would attenuate or decrease the um, the, uh, the seizure activity. And since that is already approved, uh, vagal stimulation, uh, then the notion is that maybe it will be possible to uh, use the vagal stimulation uh, for the treatment of of uh, 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 of PTSD, even existing PTSD, because you can you can activate the system by stimulating it. So there are other other kinds of treatments that are being thought of, but they all have to do with the adrenergic system for the mo most part, because that's the one that has such a prominent role in the development and the maintenance of um, of uh, strong memory. Great. Well, uh, we're just about out of time. So thank you so much for being with us here today and, and telling us about the science. Well, thank you. It's, it's been interesting to discuss this with you. Uh, if you guys are interested in learning more about Dr. James McGaugh and his research on emotional regulation of memory consolidation, you can navigate to the show notes for this episode on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. 
Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>